So you have BPH, you have an enlarged prostate, and it's causing urinary problems. You even, that stream is slow, it has slowed down, and you probably have had retention. You need a medical treatment. How do you choose? There's so many medical treatments out there to treat BPH. Today, we're talking to an expert, Dr. Dan Graunick, a urologist at University of Wisconsin Health, where he is the director of the HOLA program. HOLA is a medical treatment, yet another, to open up the prostate for men to urinate better. Our conversation with Dr. Gralnick was on HOLIP and its benefits. What does it, what is HOLIP? How does this procedure help men urinate better? What are the side effects? And how does it compare to other procedures like simple prostatectomy and TERP and green light laser and so forth? So my conversation with Dr. Dan Gralnick from the University of Wisconsin on BPH and the HOLIP procedure. Let's go. <music> Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention and my goal to help you with your prostate health and how to live better with age. We have Dan from University of Wisconsin, Dan Granelik. Dr. Granelik, thank you so much for being on. Um, is it what, 7 o'clock, 7.13 out there by you? 8.13, but yeah. Oh, only one year, right? Time uh, saved life. So it's not that early for you, so... Before I hit record, we were talking for about 30 minutes, so I, I, I didn't realize it was much later than I had anticipated. So hopefully we get you out and back with your family soon. But thank you for being on, and you don't know me, I don't know you. We, you know, we, started to get, we, we started to get to know each other prior to the recording, and what a great match. It sometimes worked that way. I just looked at the UW website for another practitioner, for another referral, and I saw your name and BPH expert Holep came up. I was like, that's the guy. I'm going to email. What do I have to lose? I don't know anyone in New York that does Holep. In fact, I don't think anyone in New York does Holep. So I'm glad you agreed to be on. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to, to share everything that we can about this, Joe. All right, Dan. So I lost count as to how many medical treatments there are for BPH. <laughs> In this day, I just lost count. And every time I turn, there's something new, even in our department, right? So Chris Kelly, I, I had him on, does aqua ablation. You know, um, um, I learned about aqua ablation only like about a year ago. I, I don't think even Chris, I think he just started maybe a year or two ago doing aqua ablation. Um, I was like, wow, yet another treatment for BPH. Um course they've done they've done green lights green light laser therapy of course the gold standard is terp everything's compared to terp Eurolift, resume um simple prostatectomy which you know one of my colleagues does and i had a re i referred a patient to him and he said and when my patient came back he said well he did a prostatectomy on me it's like it doesn't make sense what do you mean he did a prostatectomy yeah he did a prostatectomy I learned from James Weissock. No, I did a simple prostatectomy. I didn't even know about this treatment. It's done in my department. There's just so many treatments. So let's start with this. What is your approach when somebody comes in and, um, you know, with urinary symptoms of, in this case, a male, um, you know, anywhere above 50, let's say maybe 62 years old, you know, pulling that number a little bit out of the air, although most men with BPH are older, 
and they come to your office and you're trying to evaluate, does this guy have BPH that's causing the urinary symptoms? We say that because as Bilal Shantai from uh, Cornell would say, you know, you blame the organ you have. I, I feel like, and we spoke about this before I hit record, that oftentimes they're given prostate drugs and 5-ARIs inhibitors, things like uh, uh, a Proscar, Finasteride, or Dutasteride. And I don't get the sense that is a prostate problem. I get the sense that it might be an overactive bladder problem or so, something else. Um, but they're given, they're, they're, they're prescribed uh, one of these drugs. So what is your approach to, to determine, you know, you take them through your process and it's like, yep, it's BPH or you know what, it's not BPH, let's try something else. I think that's a great question. And I think it's a really interesting one in that a lot of times we think that the BPH itself um, causing some obstruction, the bladder has to work harder, and so most of the symptoms may be bladder-related, which is more of a domino effect of uh, the primary issue. But if they're doing well, then you know treatment for the bladder itself may be uh, a reasonable first step for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that uh, historically it was. You know, you either had to live with it or have a catheter or there was a TERP or an open surgery and people wanted something, some other option. And that's really when medication started in the, I think it was the 70s, maybe the early 80s. Um, and I think that if you said to somebody, I could give you a single pill or you could have one of these surgeries that you've heard about that are, you know, bloody and people are in the hospital for a long time, um, they're always going to pick the pill. However, most of the pills like tamsulosin and some of the alpha blockers, you know, they have a very short half-life. And if you aren't taking them for a couple of days, you'll suddenly have all the symptoms come right back. Um, And so it's a lifetime of medication. It's not Mm -hmm. just a pill. Mm -hmm. And so I think that as we've done 20 or 30 years of medication, people started looking into, are there other options? And that's when there was a plethora of different options, like you were mentioning. You know, all these different surgeries came up that were kind of a kinder, gentler version of a TERP that maybe had uh, similar outcomes or they were hoping they'd be at least close to as good an outcome, um, but, but, but it was better than medication. And so... I totally went off. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're, you're fine. Sorry, Jim. You're, you're completely fine, actually, because that's kind of given us an overview of the different steps before. It's still in all people, you know, many of these tre- medical treatments um, that we're going to discuss, whole it primarily, um, it's people, it, it, it's sort of minimally invasive if you compare it to a TERP, but, you know, is anesthesia, is catheters after, you know, treat. So it's not a walk in the park. And I think a lot of people know that. And a lot of people would say, look, give me the pill. How much salt palmetto should I take? Or, you know, tamsulosin or give me the natural approach or give me something. Um, so I think taking people through those steps. Now, my, how I had a patient recently who, um, He is so, actually, I, I really learn from patients. I mean, I, I think there's, there's an old saying, who teaches students, doctors, but who teach doctors, patients, right? That, yeah. So I constantly, is amazing that I'm 20 years later, I'm still learning as much as I do, and it's actually great. Here's a guy, 
who, um, so, uh, some of my patients come to me and they're so eager to do well that even though they have urinary retention and they're probably feeling uncomfortable, they're so eager to do well and so eager not to do anything conventional that they'll say, I feel fine. And you see their IPSS and it's like not that bad. So they're not saying the whole truth. Case in point, patient comes in. I do, I'm also an acupuncturist. So I do acupuncture. I do the, you know, the um, different herbal things and lifestyle things. Right. And, you know, his IPSS goes down, you know, from like a 26 to like a 15. Right. Okay. That's pretty good. Pretty good. And then I was like, okay. And I say, hey, how you doing? Oh my God, I'm doing great. I'm peeing, you know, well. I did palpate his abdominal area and it, it felt like there was um, some extension there, right? Distension. And I said, this is, oh, no, no, my urologist, he saw that, he says, that's nothing. Okay. And I'm, and now it's like years later. And he, you know, get a text, he's on retention and he had like, you know, 800 cc's in, in his, and then he self-calf, then he Stopped self-caffeine with some tamsulosin. He did better. However, he still had like 400 cc's when you do, when we did a PVR. So, and he's going to do a, a treatment, a medical treatment. The story, the moral of that story is that, um, by the way, I should have done a PVR prior to, and I didn't because I just took his word for it. And then it's like, I'm not going to believe you guys anymore. I'm going to do a PVR every single time now. In my type of practice, Dan, it's not like I do PVRs right away because I'm not a conventional urologist and things like that. I don't have to bill for it or anything like that. It's not what I do. But in this, in some cases, in cases like this, this is what I, um, I should have done. My question, with this guy, I don't know that his bladder is not compromised at this point, actually. I, I don't know that. We did a urodynamic uh, test, and it seems like his bladder is somewhat fine in, in this particular case. So my question it's to lucky. you, what's that? He was lucky. He, I think so. I think yeah. so because, so my question to you is the following. In this particular case, in a case similar to this, where they've been in retention for however long or, you know, holding a lot of urine in um, for a very long time, if they do have a compromised bladder from a urodynamic, do, would you still do a, is, still, is there still benefit from a procedure or are they still going to hold urine because now they have what lay people call a floppy bladder where the bladder is just not working as well anymore. So then they're not urinating properly. Sorry um, for the long story no, but, here, but I wanted to bring some context. So, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. And so for people whose bladders don't function as well, if you can decrease the amount of work they have to do, then they may do very well. And so I'll still talk to them about potential surgeries. Medication may not help them much more at that point. You know, they've gotten to the point where if they're lucky, they're okay, but they may have to use a catheter. Mm -hmm. But if you open the prostate channel, you may find that they're able to void on their own pretty well. Whereas after like a whole up surgery, I tell people, you know, 99.9% .9 chance you're going to be able to go to the bathroom. In those people who are already on a catheter or have poor bladder function, I may tell them, you know, there's a, a 5 to 10% chance that maybe the bladder still won't function as well. But you may be able to get by just with that. And so we do discuss that. Um, and it's still an option. 
some people are, you know, they're used to using a catheter and they're happy with that, or they're doing well enough with their bladder emptying that we can just observe it as long as there's no problems with infections or, or kidney compromise because of the, the obstruction. I find it absolutely fascinating how, you know, initially no one wants to self-catheterize, right? So I just me doing that, putting the catheter through my own, no way. And then once they start doing it, they get re- so much relief and it's sort of easy after a while. They're like, oh my God, I could do this forever. Um, so that's a, that's a couple of cases that we've had and I've had that like that. Um, so your process is, so once you determine, so you, you, you would do a, the typical uroflometry, uh, you would do probably a PVR and things that will clearly dictate yeah, that they're, they're, you, you don't necessarily wait for the, for the, for the patient to be in retention, I would say. No, um, at that point, you know, the, the outcome isn't quite as good. And so I think catching people before that is better. Um, But it's hard to tell somebody like you're describing somebody where the symptoms come on very slowly. So they don't really notice them. You know, if it takes 60 years to have symptoms, you just think that's normal part of aging. And this is oh, everybody gets up every 20 minutes. And, and, you know, I mean, I've had people who get up 10 to 12 times a night and say, oh, I think everybody does that. (laughs) I said, I I don't know how you sleep. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But so some of these patients... um, when they don't have kind of, they don't think the symptoms are that bad, you know, after, I mean, sometimes after medication or after surgery, they're so much better that they, they're amazed. Like you said, getting, having somebody go from an IPSS of uh, 22 to 15 with acupuncture, they're going to be thrilled with you. Yeah, if they're being truthful to those, to those, it's so subjective, you know, it's a, it's a great questionnaire, I mean, but it's so subjective. Um so then, do you ever do a urodynamic? And for the listener, urodynamic is a test that um, a, a, it requires a bit more, uh, but it can t- it can tell you the the, the health of your bladder. Um, um, and you, if the listener has been listening for a while, we've had these discussions with Dr. Shuktai and uh, Dr. Kelly in the past. So you can look at those episodes. Do you? When would you, if at all? Let me ask the question: Order or, or do a urodynamic test? So the urodynamic test really checks a lot of the neurologic function of the bladder. Mm -hmm. And so from my standpoint, if they don't have, um, if they're not in retention with uh, a bladder of five to six liters, you know, that has been going on for for years and years and years, um, if they haven't had a stroke or have some significant neurologic problem, I don't tend to do urodynamics. Mm -hmm. I find them, too many patients over the years have not really enjoyed having them done and so i explain what goes through what goes into it just just for those that have never have no idea what that is so it's really kind of three different parts there's a small catheter that they Mm -hmm. put in uh the penis to measure the pressure inside the bladder there's a small balloon catheter that they put in the rectum to measure kind of abdominal pressure and then there's usually kind of patches. We've gotten away from needles to measure the sphincter muscle. Um, and, you know, where, we'll, where are those patches uh, attached to? They're usually close to the perineum, sort of near the bottom of the scrotum, sort of that area the patches are. Um, and then they'll fill the bladder through one of the catheters. And, you know, they'll ask the patient when they start to feel like 
they can tell they they're getting full or would they be running to the bathroom or this is as much as they can take and then they have them try and urinate and they do have a video version of it and some people really don't i mean it's hard to urinate while somebody's staring at you exactly. i think yeah, some patients have have not loved it and yeah, so exactly. i tend to i tend not to use it because i see a lot of my patients over and over again and so it's a hard conversation to have with them of why did you need that test? Well, exactly. I don't usually. Do you, so then you would, um, at times, depending on the scenario, you would recommend, um, I mean, do you, uh, it depends on the case. Uh, you, I know that's what you're going to say, but will you go right into some of the meds like tamsulosin or say, look, I think you need a procedure. How do you determine what what severity of situation do you go by that the patient either tells you or some sort of objective reading that you say, look, I think you need a procedure? Well, a lot of times they've been on medication by the time they even get to me. Mm. And so that's a little bit different. Whereas kind of on the front lines, then people are having that conversation in the first place. Um, but I think that, you know, a trial of medication is reasonable. Um, but then I think that somebody needs to say, okay, we know that the medication has helped and that may help for a long time, but be aware that you are required to stay on this medication long term to continue to have this improvement. Mm. Um, and so I think that's a different conversation than, hey, would you like a, a pill or surgery? Mm. And so um, usually I'll talk to them more about kind of what their symptoms are and how much it bothers them. Um, I don't have any problem with trying different medications. You know, most of the time there's not a time frame that someone has to have a treatment by. And so I think that it's more of a conversation with the patient that, that I enjoy having, you know, saying, okay, well, we can try medication, pelvic floor physical therapy, certainly in some patients who have a lot of urgency or, or other symptoms uh, has been proven to be worthwhile. Um, but then talking to them seriously about, you know, what different procedures there are and the side effects and, and, you know, what's your goal? Mm. Excellent. So now we know they need surgery and you're going to recommend Holip. So do you ever recommend anything that's not Holip? I'm just curious. So a lot of people listening will say, ah, oh, these doctors, they always, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, you know, they're going to recommend exactly what they do. Um, you know, in, pro in the prostate cancer world, obviously, uh, most people would say at least two options, like radiation, and they go, go see the radiation oncologist. I don't foresee that happening in the people who, uh, the, the physicians who specialize in BPH. Well, you have Urolift, I don't do it, but that's an option. Or you have this, I don't do it. That's. A do you ever recommend something else? Um, so I, I taught myself how to do the hole up in about 2017. Mm -hmm. And so probably for at least two or three years, it was hole up only. And part of that was um, my own learning. First of all, the outcomes are stunning. You know, seeing patients afterwards, and this is one of the few surgeries where afterwards they're like, you have absolutely changed my life. Mm. I'll never need medication or any other surgery. You know, it has the best longevity mm. uh, of any option. And so that was really kind of impressive to me. Um, and so that's part of the discussion I have with some people, you know, if you're 50 and you have pretty significant symptoms and you end up having a, a large prostate, you know, struggling along for many years, taking medications or all these other treatments are options. But for some people, they're like, you know what, if you could fix it so I never have to worry about it, then I'd like the whole of it. 
Um, but in the last couple of years, I've really started to say, you know, is that always the right answer? And uh, so I've gotten into doing several of the other options. Um, I think that there's a place for the, the true minimally invasive, you know, the, uh, the resume, the Eurolift, the, the new ITIND type treatments, uh, especially if I can do them in the office. And that's currently what I'm uh, trying to, to look into. Mm. Um, is that it saves a lot of money for the patient. It may not be the 20-year treatment, but but it may buy them 5 to 10, and they'd be happy with that. For sure. Um, what's ITIN? So ITIN is it's a temporary implantable nitinol basket um, that basically is put inside the prostate, and it is opened. Um, just in the office, it's put in with a scope. And it stays in for five to seven days, hmm. um, and then it's taken out in the office. And the the theory is that it remolds the shape of the internal part of the prostate and may help with urinary flow. And so some of the data that I've read has been quite good. And so currently I'm trying to get that to be available at, at, at Wisconsin. Hmm. Well, good luck with that. Um I always say I the, I learn something every day. Just when you think you heard, oh, I I don't think I knew I knew anything about Titan and or either at the AUA meetings or, or from colleagues. So there you go, there you go. It is and really I think Holup as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I know we we get it, we get it. I, I get it. I read some research on Holup. So um, bef- you know and. One of the, I, I was having a discussion early in the clinic today. I said, you know, the thing with this many of these treatments is just there's not a head, a lot of head to head research. Actually, look a little further, there's a little bit of head to head research with Holip and, and Terp. And I think that um, Holip and simple prostatectomy relatively risk recently. Um, explain what Holip is and what, what, how, how does the procedure work? Um, and before you do that, let me give the, the listener a little bit of context. Um, and, and you can course correct me whenever you think, wherever you think I'm wrong. Um, the idea here is that around the urethra, that's the tube that brings out the semen and the urine, um, there is a part of the prostate called the transitional zone. And, and the transitional zone, that particular area kind of becomes bigger. Maybe as the prostate gets bigger, the transitional zone gets bigger. Though, Dan, I've seen small prostates, small-ish prostates with big transitional zones. So I don't know what the deal is there. But in any event, the, trans- the transitional zone gets bigger, squeezes in the urethra. Then it causes an obstruction, a urinary obstruction scenario, where if that's not fixed, then it can lead to bladder problems. Now, the integrity of your bladder is compromised. And if that's not fixed, it could go up further and cause kidney damage. So you want to get that fixed. And the idea is that you can resect that with different types of energies that are available. Some of them resume green light laser. And another form is what Dr. Granulik will talk about is HOLIP. And HOLIP is actually the I, I'm pretty familiar with other energies. I'm not familiar with Holip. So, what is Holip, and how do you open up the prostate with with that with that approach? 
So the HOLA stands for Holmium Laser Nucleation of the Prostate. And so it's a Holmium laser, and we've been using them in urology, especially for stones, for probably 25 to 30 years now. Um, and around 2000, people started using lasers to heat up the inside part of the prostate, hoping that it would then sort of necrose or, um, you know, it would shrink and make the opening bigger, basically. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that, oh, well, what if you cut it out like a terp, but the laser, which can get very good hemostasis at the same time, was was taking care of it. And so um, the holop is um, a, a scope. Um, so with the cystoscope, we look inside. And inside the prostate, you can use the laser um, to cut through the center part, the transitional zone of the prostate. And if you imagine it's sort of like an orange, the uh, fruit can separate from the rind very nicely with the laser. Um, and so you can go in and remove a significant amount of the prostate and open that channel wide up. Um, and by removing so much of it, it's better um, longevity than TERP. And it has been compared extensively to a lot of different surgeries. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the laser does a really nice job of separating the tissue as well as getting hemostasis, especially with some of the newer uh, versions of the, the laser. It's uh, even better at hemostasis. And so I can actually do, you know, a pretty large prostate and send a patient home the same day. Um, and we've done a lot of testing with sending them home even without a catheter the same day. And surprisingly, it's not a painful operation at all um, afterwards. I haven't done somebody wide awake. We've done them certainly on with spinal, but I've never done anything more aggressive than that. Uh, but yeah. afterwards, they don't really have, have pain. And so by opening the channel through the middle of the prostate so wide, they'll have a stream that's very, very strong. And then the bladder has a chance to... to to recombobulate itself, basically, after right. working so hard for so many years. Are you also removing part of the bladder neck or the bladder neck? Yes, we are definitely removing the bladder neck. Where yeah. the bladder and the prostate come together, that yeah. uh, that is excised as well. Yeah. And what makes it, because when you look at some of these other treatments, it's a very similar approach. They do They use a different type of energy source, similar approach, and they're all trying to do the same thing open up the prostate, open up that area, you know, remove the bladder neck. What from this technology makes it so much different than green light laser or, or you know, resume or any of these other than the energy source? Um, so those different treatments, they really tend to work. I mean, especially the green light and terp and other things like that. It works from the center of the urethra out. Mm -hmm. And the people don't go as deep as you end up going to the capsule with either a, a simple prostatectomy or the the hole up the laser itself and so really the simple prostatectomy um and the hole up are very similar one just is able to do it with a scope and the other kind of with a an, an incision into the bladder or around the prostate interesting okay and so some of the things that one, if, if I am thinking of, okay, you know, all these options, right? Oh, what, what There's a book called um, The Paradox of Options or something like that, which is like 
really, we don't want that many options. <laughs> Just tell me what to do kind of thing, right? Um, but, you know, they're out there. And one is looking in the internet and they're saying, well, I'm more confused. Um, so some of the things that you already mentioned, a couple of things are like, wow. So same, they go home same day. That's a plus. Okay. You've already tried. Now, I don't know that many of your colleagues would do this, but you, you since you do so many of these, have had patients who go home without a catheter. That's a big deal. I don't think that in any other procedure you can do that, right? They're trying it with some other ones because we, we've been successful with this. And, you know, it's probably, I would guess, 75 to 85% successful in the right people just, you know, and we look at them after surgery to make sure everything looks okay. Um, as somebody who's already had a stroke, I may not do that. Mm -hmm. um, some people are very happy to say, you know, I'd really just rather have a catheter for a day and not have a chance to have a catheter put back in while I'm awake after surgery. And so that has limited some of my excitement for it. But mm -hmm. we, I do discuss this with a lot of patients about potentially taking out the catheter if everything looks good same day and seeing how you do. Um, and so it, it's a big plus. I mean, it, it is. For, when most of the pain is from the catheter itself, it's been nice to offer that. The other component that people look at is blood loss. So with Terps, there's more blood loss and so forth. Um, what is it like with Holi? The the laser does such a nice job with hemostasis that that's not a problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the other differences is that, you know, if if you use the orange analogy, mm -hmm. um, with the terp, they're basically cutting through the fruit and you have juice flying everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and they try and get somewhere close to the peel, but they really, really don't get there. With the hole up, we sort of start at the peel and we're able to remove the fruit intact entirely. And so we don't get into a lot of those blood vessels. I see. Um, and so it's much less bloody. And Maybe I'm at the point where we can take care of people on blood thinners with mm -hmm. HOLA. Oh, whereas I okay. never consider that for a terp. Fascinating. Maybe I missed it. So the, the scope goes in through the urethra? How do you yep. go from the prostate in rather than the inside out? I, I guess that's the question. If you're coming in, what is the part that does the resection of with this energy source? And where is that part coming in through? I guess that's the question. So the camera has different openings, and one of them is putting fluid in, and one is allowing the laser to be put in with the same camera. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking at the spot, and I have control of the laser itself. And so the laser will sort of cut through the urethra itself and then um, and then actually it sort of separates the tissue. It sort of creates a, um, it's kind of like a bubble of water that sort of separates between the peel and the, and the fruit itself to, mm. to, to show you the plane. Mm. And so it's, it's relatively nice to be able to follow this area and then you can remove the entire inner part of the prostate. Mm. Um, and then the urethra just reheals around that area. Um, but so we usually remove the prostate in one or two pieces into the bladder. And then the last part of the surgery is we take the laser out and we put in something called a morselator, which is a, a fancy suction grinder. Um, and we pull out all the pieces of the prostate, which then get looked at, to, you know, and evaluated for cancer or other things like that. Excellent. And so that's that one of the advantages of the whole up. 
Mm-hmm. Sorry, Jerry. Excellent. That was my next question. Can you take some of the tissue and evaluate it uh, for prostate cancer? That's great. Um, I think that just yells at us because we send so much tissue. So sometimes they're not so happy with us. <laughs> you know, it here's in one way, right? So in one way, um, I guess they got it removed, right? So they're happy. Wow, you removed cancer as well. That's great. You know, as a twofer, you, I can pee better, and you you removed cancer. But in in another in another way is like you know, do you want to find Gleason sixes and possibly another Gleason something somewhere? Does it open up a can of worms when you send this tissue to the pathologist? A little bit. Um, and so actually we were doing a, a study at the university because we had so many patients that we were finding kind of this low grade cancer. And, uh, most of the time what we'll see is that they're after surgery, their PSA drops below one. Hmm. Um, and so if we watch that over time, if it changes and starts going up, then we'll follow it up with an MRI or a biopsy, depending on the patient's age. You know, obviously if they're 85 and there's Gleason six or very low grade cancer, we tell them, you know, we'll do some blood tests, but you, you shouldn't have to worry about this. Don't probably, you would say the same thing to an 85 year old, actually visit Gleason eight. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Probably some comorbidities. Um, so in theory, all right, I'm going to throw this out there. MRI, 3T MRI shows that there is prostate cancer on the transitional zone. They have a big prostate. The prostate is giving them problems. In theory, you can actually really treat the prostate cancer and the BPH at the same time. Yeah, I usually caution the patients that I don't think of this as a cancer operation. Um, but it, it the guy be. from Tulsa would say that it is a B, they treat cancer around there, but it's also a BPH. So they're not they're not saying what you're saying. They're saying it's also a BPH operation that but we're treating <laughs> cancer. So, but I've had several patients that have been on you know active surveillance that some of the oncologists, if it's stable and they have a lot of voiding symptoms and a big prostate, the oncologists are actually sending me patients and we're resecting patients with known prostate cancer. Mm. And so that's kind of been an interesting thing as well. But I, I don't think of it as a cancer operation. Well, I don't think you can because it's like think it's it's a, it's a you know it's it's not standardized maybe but i think it's a, a it's somewhere to look you know something to look at when i said tulsa by the way just to be clear to you and the audience i'm not i don't mean tulsa oklahoma i mean the the treatment for prostate cancer the minimally invasive treatment tulsa transurete whatever transurete whatever it stands for where that they reset, so the, if there's cancer uh, near the transitional zone maybe even central zone they they do this procedure through the urethra where they you know, remove that area. And typically these are people with big prostates and they, but their primary primary intention is to remove the cancer, not a BPH treatment, but they would kind of present it as we can also kind of, you know, treat the BPH. So as well, what you're saying is no, we're treating the BPH, not the cancer. And I'm saying, Hey, that might be, you know, that might be a nice secondary benefit or something to look at and study and do some sort of trial and see, and you can actually say it and you can actually Bill, bill for it, you know, where you could say, look, um, you know, we did a study on this. Um, well, being think- Wisconsin, I'm going to interrupt and say that this reminds me of the Miller Lite commercial. With, <laughs> is it less filling or does it taste great? So, <laughs> right. Look, you, you haven't been living in Wisconsin that long to have these Wisconsin types. Are you a Packers fan? I, I don't, I don't wouldn't believe you're a Packers fan. 
by now. You you only been there for nine years. Yeah, um, I, I've been to Lambo, and it's an amazing experience. Right. I can't say I'm a Packers fan, but don't right. help with people I live around. No, no, no. You got you got to keep that to yourself. Where, where where did you come from before going to Wisconsin? I grew up in Arizona and spent 15 years in Iowa before coming to Wisconsin. I've been in Wisconsin now nine years. Wow. Were you at Wisconsin in a private, uh, Iowa in a private group or uh, University of Iowa? I was in a private group in Iowa City itself. So we were in the same town as the university. It was an interesting experience. There again, you were not a Hawkeye or a Cyclone. You, you kind of stayed stay through through your roots, Phoenix roots. It, well, you had to be an Iowa, a University of Iowa. You had to be a Hawkeye fan living there. <laughs> that, that was required, actually. So if not, you can't really walk around with much. Yeah, it, it reminds when I my my nephew went his first job out of college, right, Columbus, Ohio, Abercrombie and Fish, the clothing store. You know, he had no money. He's like, "Wow, well, I'm going to make some decent money, and I'm going to live in Columbus, Ohio." I said to him, "I said, well, I know you're broke. Here's a hundred bucks." But are you only going to get it if you put on this Michigan shirt and you walk around? You walk around. You walk around Columbus with this Michigan. He's like, no way! I wouldn't make it. I wouldn't make it out alive around here with that. <laughs> it is. It's true. So same thing with. But you know, the guys at uh, Madison is a cool place. I, I've had my New York Giants hat there a couple of times. No, no big problems. Though I love the Badgers. Um, how? Does size matter for a whole lip? I, I think I read, you know, 100 larger, better, same with a simple prostatectomy. But does it really matter? Can it be under 100 grams? Or what, why, would it, why, do, why would it have to be 100 grams or higher? Or, or so higher a whole lip is one of the few things that's considered size independent. So okay. there's, there's no size that can't be done with a whole lip. And so that's one of the big advantages. And so, yeah, no, you can certainly do smaller prostates. Um, but you could, I mean, if the average prostate size is 25 to 30 grams, you know, we're routinely doing people 100 to 200. Um, but we do a lot of people in the 50s, 60s, 80s, because the outcome is excellent. Mm -hmm. When you say the outcome is excellent, what exactly do you mean? And, and, and so when I look at the different, you know, metrics is to, to determine what's uh, excellent results, I'm thinking, okay. How long does it take for a recurrence to occur where you now they need another procedure, whether another whole lip or something else? Um, um, in urinary incontinence problems that occur with many of these procedures and any, um, uh, any sexual problems that can occur. So I'll start with the first one or with yeah. the last one. Uh, yeah. Those sexual problems, it will not affect erections mm -hmm. um, at all. Getting medication, um, getting off of some of the medications that people use for BPH. Some patients will actually have improved erections after that, after that, mm -hmm. getting off of those medications. But it definitely affects ejaculation in a majority of cases. There is a technique that can be done that is more likely to preserve ejaculation, but I don't do it routinely. Um, because then it, um, I, I can't tell them how long it'll last. Whereas we know that holop will last 20 plus years with 99% success. 20 and plus years. That's the, the five year to 10 year rate with most other procedures are not nearly as good. Right. And, and that's really kind of one of the big selling points from my standpoint is that by removing so much of the tissue, you sort of don't give it a nitus for it to re to start growing again. 
Whereas with the TERP, you know, there's always a little bit of tissue. With the green light, there's a significant amount of tissue that's still in there that, that then regrows. Um, and it has sort of a, a starting point. With the HOLUP, it, it, it really doesn't. Hmm. Um, and so most of these patients will say, oh my gosh, you know, I can power wash my driveway with my stream. It's amazing. Um, I empty the bladder, you know, quickly and easily. I'm able to sleep through the night. I can drive six to eight hours before I have to stop. Um, and it, it's long lasting. You don't need medication or surgery again, the vast, vast majority of time. Um, the downside is that uh, some patients do have temporary incontinence, um, you know, and the rates can be anywhere from 5 to 30% um, in the early post-op period. It's really trans it's, uh, a transient le leakage, mm -hmm. um, and for some people it's urge-related. You know, they have a feeling they need to go to the bathroom, and now the bladder still squeezes pretty hard, and it, it sort of pushes all the urine out pretty quickly. Um, it usually gets better on its own. Pelvic floor physical therapy definitely can help. And so mm -hmm. some people talk about doing that ahead of time. Yep. If they have a lot of urgency, sometimes we'll put in Botox at the same time. Um, can you get a twofer with the Botox as well? Where, you know, yeah, uh, the, around the eyes, cheeks, bladder. The uh, Botox, uh, we use it everywhere. So, yeah. <laughs> The Botox. I don't think actually my listeners know when you you said that, and of course I'm familiar with it, but a lot of them. What did he say? Botox. Botox. So yeah. Where 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 would those injections go? So Botox is a it's a muscle paralyzer basically, yeah. mm -hmm. and so it can be used inside the bladder. And if it's put in for a lot of people, it gets rid of their urgency or frequent urination. Um, and so Botox in the bladder has been used a lot in in overactive bladder and more mm -hmm. commonly in females where they have, you know, no obstruction. And so there was always some hesitancy with men because of the prostate, but at the same time as a hole up, you know, you're opening that channel. And so we can take advantage and that sort of buys them the time for the tran transient incontinence for some people. And so people who have severe urge incontinence, when they come in to see me with voiding symptoms, then we, we discuss whether Botox might be an option at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I do, I help patients prior to prostatectomy for prostate cancer. I have this integrated pre-surgery program that involves numerous things, nutritionally, some supplements to take, others to not take, um, and pelvic floor exercises. I do think that, um, and again, anecdotal, but there's some research uh, written in the UK that um, beef, you know, pre-Kegel exercises, and I have a whole protocol called Kegels on steroids with a few other things, but the bottom line is um, strengthening that external urethral sphincter um, prior to, I think there's benefit there. So I would think there would be benefit there for patients undergoing, undergoing HOLIP as well. They go to a right therapist. Absolutely. I think that in men, that muscle is so weak because yeah. we've, as we get older, the prostate basically makes it so it doesn't have to do that much work. That's right. And so it's very, very weak in men. And so I think that it's a very helpful thing. We, we use it for so much now that we need more pelvic floor physical therapists. You know, so we, I hear you with whole lip and it's like, oh man, where do I sign? This is it. This is it. I mean, less blood loss, you know. Um, um, 
if my pelvic sphincter muscles are strong enough, probably very little time with incontinence, keep my erections, you know, I don't really care to um, ejaculate because I don't, you know, care to have, and, and, and it would not affect their orgasm or their feeling of an orgasm. So uh, that's fine. It's like, where, where do I, 20 years? You're going to give me 20 years from this? Where do I sign? Um, what are the side effects, not only that is published, because sometimes I think, see things published. I'm like, my God, I've seen a thousand of these cases. I just don't see these side effects because um, they, they give you a whole laundry list. What are the side effects that can really happen that you've seen that um, can interfere with um, a patient's quality of life? Um, I think the main one is the incontinence. Um, there's probably one or two percent that it'll last six months or more. Mm. And those patients, I mean, and there's treatment options available. Um, but to me, that's probably the biggest complaint I get. Usually, I mean, the patients are usually very, very happy with the outcome. And like, they don't even want to come back. They're like, why would I need to come back to see right. you? And I said, well, we're doing research, so please come back and fill out this form. Um, exactly. But, but well, they, they still have they, a prostate. They're still vulnerable for things like prostate cancer. They still have a lot of their prostate, right? What do they have? Like maybe still fit, depends on the size of the prostate, but 50% of their prostate or less? I would tell you that it's probably closer to 20. I think that oh. in the big, when we do a hole up, we're taking out, I would guess between 65 and 80% of the prostate tissue itself. And so it's, it's very different. And one of the fun things that we've been doing is seeing some of the MRIs on people who've had a hole up. And then, you know, if their PSA is up or something else, someone gets a, an MRI. And um, when we knew that somebody had a, a prostate of 180 grams, and we get out 150, and then they get a, an MRI, and they, they the prostate is measured at nine cc's, which is probably an overestimation. You know, I, I've only done that <laughs> Right. A nine cc. Did we just test a three-year-old or? Right. So, yeah. Um, wow. That's, that's um, it's, you know. The, the cynic would say, can I do this prophylactically? How can, how can I get this done, you know, prophylactically? I mean, it sounds like a win-win. Less likelihood of having prostate cancer, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek, actually, a little bit. Because, like, you, you know, guys with high risk um, with family history of prostate cancer, right? So they some of these guys want their prostates removed, actually. Yes. Yeah, uh, certainly. So this, this sounds like a reasonable approach that somebody would want to... Um, try to explore. I know you won't do it for prophylactic reasons. I don't think anyone in the U.S., but I'm sure some, somewhere, someone around the, anywhere in the world would. Uh, I remember the high food days. Oh, sure. We still in the high food days, but I'm talking 20 years ago. You know, they're going overseas. It's like everybody got hope. Yeah, Mexico. Everybody got high food. You know, no, doesn't matter what kind of cancer they had. You know, it was like really a disaster. Um, some guys were forget about it. It was. I was scratching my head. I was a young, you know, natural doctor in a conventional world. And I was like, this doesn't seem right to me, but okay. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Um, Dan, final thoughts. I think we covered um, full spectrum, at least how HOLIP works and the benefits of pros and cons, um, your approach to dealing with BPH. Um any any final thoughts for the listener as to you know anything that we did not cover that you think it's important for them to know? 
I guess I would say, you know, one of the reasons that there's very few people in New York that are doing this, maybe nobody. Um, I make it, nobody. <laughs> yes. It, um, it has a reputation of being incredibly difficult to learn. And that reputation was from its early days when the lasers weren't as powerful and didn't have as good hemostasis. Mm. And when I talked to some of the people who were doing it 20 years ago, it sounds like a completely different operation than what we have now. The vision is, is really good. And so we can see the plane we want to see. And so um, an advancement in the technology has made it so that I think this is a, a very learnable procedure. Mm. And the problem was there were only a few people doing it in the country. And they would teach, an, you know, they would teach one person every two years. And so it wasn't um, expanding rapidly. And that's why you're not seeing a lot of people doing it. But I think in the last five years, the technology has made it so that it's a lot easier to learn. And so one of the joys that I have at the university is teaching um, my trainees how to do it. And now they're going out into practice and they're doing it. And, you know, occasionally someone will come in and they'll watch and they'll say, I think I could do this. And, you know, usually you'll, we'll encourage them. It definitely has a learning curve um, of probably 20 cases. Um, of, but most surgeries have some learning curve in itself. And I think that it just has a reputation of being more difficult than it is currently. Well, 20 cases is not, uh, that's not bad at all, actually. But is it 20 cases for you and you teaching them, or is it 50 cases if somebody else? The reason why I ask is actually you, you raise a very good point. I ask that question often, actually. Uh, I'm glad you, you, you raised that point. Um, when I talk to the uh, you know aqua ablation people, the physicians who do this, one of the things that they um, talk about is that it does not require a huge learning curve. It's like after five cases, you you're good to go. So it's easy to learn and so forth. Uh, Twenty cases does not sound like a whole lot. It doesn't sound bad to me, but is that a you situation in your practice or? No, I think that at 20 cases, people are comfortable and, mm -hmm. you know, they, some of the uh, companies that have the lasers will like, I mean, occasionally I'll go out and help somebody and just observe. I, I like to be there between like case five and 20 and sort of give them pointers of, Hey, you know, you've, you've got the idea, you need to do a little bit more of this or other things like that. Um, I think that it, I learned on my own and I think that there's a number of people, uh, that have as well. And, um, it's more of the idea. And once you're able to see everything, it, it, it's a lot easier. And so I think that it has this reputation of requiring, you know, years and years of practice, and that's no longer true. Mm -hmm. And so certainly aquablation doesn't have a, a as big a learning curve, um, but I don't think Holop is massive. What would be the choke point other than learn, potential learning curve? Is it way more expensive, the, the machinery or the equipment, than uh, other treatments? Uh, no, aquablation is far more expensive equipment-wise than uh, the holmium laser that most people have in their hospital already for uh, stones or other things like that. Mm. And so it's equipment and a willingness. And so what I usually tell people is, you know, you have to learn how to do this and you have to sort of uh, um, and try and get a number of cases. You can't do one case every three months and hope to learn it. Mm. You need to sort of do a number of them, get the idea, sort of learn how to ride the bike. 
And then if mm. you put the bike away, you can learn again six months later. But if you take six months between every time you get on a bike, you're never going to learn it. Yeah, you have to commit to it. If you're going to do it, do it. If not, don't do it kind of thing. Don't don't dabble too much, which is, I think you alluded to earlier, like, you know, I've done all these other things I'm looking to resume, but we're really focused on, you know, hold it. And, and that's kind of, you You put your flag down as this is what we do and this is what we're experts in. I think that, um, honestly, that's what, as a un- non-conventional doctor, that's what what's made me somewhat successful, that people value my opinion because I, most neck and D's, become a little bit of generalists, right? Um, the philosophy right. is treat the person, not the disease, right? Okay. Right. All right. But when I started seeing early on in my career, Lyme disease, cardiovascular, BPH, and I'm like, okay, maybe I'm not that smart, okay? Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not that smart. I'm going to focus in this one area, and I want to be really good in this one area, and I want to know everything conventional-wise as well in this particular area. I've been in the OR, you know, many times to observe prostatectomies and all kinds of procedures, biopsies and the biopsy room and so forth. So, you know, I chose the role that's traveled. So it's probably the same thing with any procedure for BPH, like hold it, but commit to it. And, um, you know, don't take me to the Chinese-Japanese restaurant. It's either Japanese or Chinese. <laughs> or like Cuban Chinese. I'm a Cuban, so I'm really critical with my Cuban food. It's like Cuban Chinese. Is it Cuban or is it Chinese? Come on, don't 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 be an expert in one you know one cuisine. So um so yeah, thank you for um for expanding on the learning curve part because that's a very good point. Any other thoughts as it relates to BPH and how can people um uh, make a decision um as to what to do and hopefully look hopefully. We'll, we'll, I think we'll see more Holip in, in somewhere in New York, if not at our institution, but I have no control. I'll tell my boss about it. I'll tell my boss that I spoke to you. He may want to hire you, Dan. Are you ready to come to New York? I mean, <laughs> I, I would love to come and visit and show someone there how to do it. And then, and, and then, then come uh, right back. And then come back to Madison. Uh, I love visiting New York, but uh, I'm not ready to live there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't blame you. <laughs> um, how, any other final thought, any f- final comment, and um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with your office? And I'll have that uh, information on the show notes as well. Um, sir, it's certainly through the University of Wisconsin uh, Urology website. We have a website, which is uh, com with an S, H-O-L-E-P-S.com. Um, and that'll get you to our phone number and everything else. Um but there, there are people around, and there are excellent people around that can do it. And be aware that there are many options available, and you should look into them and kind of see what it is that that you value and what what end game you know the patients want is the most important thing. And that's why there's so many different options. I think mm-hmm. that we've overused traditional medication. Um, yeah. And we've relied on it too much. And I think that we need to be aware of other options. Any, and this is the final question, I promise. Any, which, which procedure, if you want to ejaculate, which is the one that one would go to? Um, boy, that's a great question. Eurolift, not one of them? Yes, Eurolift and Resume. Um, and Resume as well. The options. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Resume has a little more burning afterwards um but it creates kind of uh, a cavity of of 
space for the new, mm-hmm. the Eurolift really it's a fancy stapler and it sort of shoves the prostate to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it, but both of them have high percentage of, of saving ejaculation. I think the downside is that people assume that it's a hundred percent and it is not. Mm-hmm. I, I have seen patients who have been upset that, you know, they didn't have normal ejaculation after one of those procedures. It's very uncommon. But uh, when they hang their hat on that, they're they're upset. Mm-hmm. Well, Dan, thanks so much. It's such a pleasure. I'm I'm so excited and happy that I reached out to you. Every now and then it works. I, I get an email back say, "Hey, sure, I'll be on." And then, you know, I'm get, I'm trying to get to the point where the podcast is so popular. It's like, hey, you know, it's an easy situation. It's not there yet, but it's getting there. Very, you know, it's uh, widely received and the numbers keep going up. So we'll, we'll get there. But I, I want to thank you for being on and uh, without us knowing each other. And, um, you know, I hope to have you on again when um, maybe you publish some research on Holip and, I don't know, the amount of uh, percentage, of, percentage of patients that successfully go home without a catheter. That would be really cool and a game changer in the field. So we'll have you it's on It's been again. a real pleasure, Gio. I've really enjoyed it. And I'll look forward to talking to you more in the future. And I'll yeah, certainly be in touch. Yeah, I look forward to it as well. Thank you so much. Okay, we're signing off. See you next time. Talk to you soon. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. and It has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, 
as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time.